love-hate relationship of speaking. I love to study, hate to speak, so, but this is part of it, right? So, if you'll bear with me. Um, so, like many of you, the, the desire to keep a good weight is always on the front burner. And so I'm, I'm getting ready. To, I, I need to exercise. And um, so my husband, being the encourager that he is, uh, decided to encourage me with a TED Talk. And uh, this is his spiritual gift. He either is going to show you a TED Talk or he's going to show you a YouTube clip. So if you ever come over, be prepared. You're going to get one. So, so anyway, so he pulls on this TED Talk. And it's all about, you know, why do some people not have trouble exercising and some people do? And so, you know, it's 18 minutes. This is how it works. Uh, But she makes the case that one of the big factors in people keeping with exercise is that she used vision uh, sciences, which was it's discovered that your vision is about the length of your arm if you looked at your thumb. And you, that is about the area that you can concentrate on, and your mind kind of fills in the rest, all right? So they discovered that people that saw the finish line, they, they found two things. One is that the exercise seemed a lot easier because they were more accurately seeing where the finish line was, and, um, and it, they didn't have to work as hard. I mean, they proved this with some studies. They had some people look at the finish line very specifically, and other people said, they said, just look around. You know, if you see the finish line, that's great, but you don't have to concentrate on it. So her, her thing was, if you keep your eye on the prize, this can actually transform your workout. All right. So what does this have to do with Hebrews? Okay, you're going, okay, she's off. All right. Well, we know from the talks we've had already that... Uh, we've got some discouraged believers who are thinking about returning to Judaism. I don't know if it's a wholesale, let's leave Christ behind, but uh, maybe it's add in a little Judaism to avoid the persecution. Uh, but either way, they're struggling. Um, so why, do, why would you start a letter to a suffering people? I mean, it doesn't even mention the people as you unfold the first chapter. Uh, They need rescue, but what they think they need rescuing from is not always what you do need rescuing from. Um, We generally think of being rescued as being rescued out of your circumstances. Change my situation, all right, Uh, instead of change me in my situation, and we're all like that. Um, We're getting ready to start a book called Glimpses of Grace, and the foreword, this isn't even in the book, uh, it was written by Lauren Chandler, who some of you may know. She starts this, and as I read it, I thought, okay, this is it. It says, when you're drowning, the last thing you need is a tutorial on five easy steps to swim like a fish. What you need, what you're utterly desperate for, is something that will keep you afloat, something that you can grab onto and not let go, something that doesn't need you to sustain it, but rather something that can bear the full weight of your desperation. So let me pray and we'll get started. Father, would you open eyes to see wonderful things out of your word? Uh, Guide my mouth as I speak today. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, so I'm going to start by reading the passage. So if you want to open your Bible and read along, we're in Hebrews 1, verse 5 through 14. 
For to which of the angels did God ever say, You are my son, today I have begotten you. Or again, I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. And again, when he brings the firstborn into the world, he says, Let all God's angels worship him. Of the angels, he says, he makes his angels winds and his ministers a flame of fire. But of the Son, he says, your throne, O God, is forever and ever. The scepter of uprightness is the scepter of your kingdom. You have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness beyond your companions. And you, Lord, laid the foundation of the earth in the beginning. And the heavens are the work of your hands. They will perish, but you remain. They will all wear out like a garment, like a robe. You will roll them up like a garment. They will be changed. But you are the same, and your ears will have no end. And to which of the angels has he ever said, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet? Are they not all ministering spirits sent out to serve for the sake of those who are to inherit salvation? All right. So we have this passage today that we're going to look at, and it really is an explanation, and uh, uh, they're going to make a case for the first four verses that Terry taught on last week. Just these beautiful verses that state who Jesus is. Um, What we're going to kind of focus on a little bit is he starts that that last verse in verse 4. He says, having become much superior to the angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. So he, he starts his case for, for why he said what he said in the verse, first four verses. And he bookends it with uh, two rhetorical questions. He says, to which of the angels did he ever say? And it's, it's one of those implied answers. He didn't say it, and, and he wouldn't say it. Okay. So why even bring up angels? Um, well, for, for starters, uh, they are the highest created being. They are greater than humans, uh, even though they serve humans. And one day humans will, when, when God's fullness comes in, humans will rule angels. But in the present, angels are greater than humans. Um, they're in the presence of God. They also are messengers of God. That's what they do. They speak the words of God. But also, they are very integral to the faith that the people are thinking about going back to. You know, they're, they're full in the Old Testament. Uh, they appeared to Abraham, Isaac, Jacob. Uh, the law was given to Moses through angels. Uh, the prophets, the announcing of Jesus' birth. Um, they're integral to everything. They're glorious creatures. Uh, unless they veil it, humans, when they see them, are tempted to worship. They temp- tend to fall down and worship. Um, and so, kind of back to, to these people who are suffering, they're also known as helpers to humans. So, um, so maybe he starts with the angel comparison because he would have known that uh, we would like some help. You know, maybe an angel can help us. Um, you know, one of my favorite stories is the story of Elisha with uh, when they encounter the army and they're surrounded by the army. And the servant of Elisha is petrified because there's just the two of them. And he, he prays that his eyes would be opened so that he would see. And all of a sudden he can see the angel armies 
surrounding the army that's surrounding them. And so the servant is just amazed. So, I mean, that's the kind of context we're talking about when they're thinking of angels. Um, But I'm going to suggest maybe another reason why Jesus' superiority superiority over the angels is the first thing he starts with. Um, And it kind of, it has to do with this phrase, having become. Um, So hasn't he, uh, so I'll read it again. Um, Having become much greater, I lost it. Having become as much superior to angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. What's this having become? It's like, that sounds a little like heresy, right? Um, But the reason he says having become is because he's going to address a period of time where something has happened. Um, The Jesus, the son, who has always existed with the father, he's entered the world. uh, Deity has put on flesh. He's lived a perfect life. He's proclaimed the message of the kingdom of God uh, that's obtained by repentance from sin and trusting in him. And he secured it with his death and resurrection. But the event the writer is talking about having become is the coronation of Jesus as king. Uh, The kingdom of God is here. And one of the commentators says, refers to this whole passage as, Uh, we are getting a glimpse of what the coronation of Jesus might have looked like. Uh, The words of God speaking his words of affirmation over his son. Um, You know, you think of coronations of kings now. I mean, we're we're America. We don't have kings, right? But we've gotten to witness it a little bit through England. You know, they're filled with pageantry. I mean, it's just all the stops are out because... You're, you're anointing the king. Um, and you could envision who's there. And it, it's the angels who are there. There's a host of angels witnessing this. And so maybe it, it makes a lot of sense why he's going to compare the king to the angels. It's because the angels have witnessed this coronation. Uh, one of the first things to notice about this passage is the speaking voice uh, in it. Terry talked about, you know, the first four verses in these last days he's spoken by his son. I mean, this speaking is critical to this passage or understanding this passage. God is talking to Jesus. All right. So as as we read through that, you can think through that. It doesn't say it even uses this active voice instead of saying it was written, you know, and he says he says. All right, so we definitely get the idea that God is speaking and his word is going to, to do something. All right, his, his word speaks today, it's living and active, and he speaks to us now. When we stand before God's word, we really are hearing God. It's like standing before God. So we should take it seriously when we read the word of God. Um, you know, it, it brings me to mind of, of the other times, some other times God spoke. Um, out of heaven, he spoke at Jesus' baptism. He said, this is my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. He spoke at his transfiguration. He said, this is my beloved son. Listen to him. And then he spoke right before Jesus went to the cross. And as Jesus prays, he says, Father, glorify your name. And God speaks again. He says, I have glorified it, and I will glorify it again. 
And now we see God speaking one more time at the enthronement of his son. And so as we get ready to look at what he says, keep that in mind. That's what we're hearing right now. So we have seven Old Testament quotations. And I mean, if you've studied the Bible long, you, when you hear seven, you know, you kind of go, okay, something's, something's up. Um, it indicates completeness. Seven days of creation, seven Old Testament feasts, seven churches in Revelation, seven angels, seven heads on a dragon, seven crowns on the seven heads. The lamb has seven horns and seven eyes. There's seven seals, seven bowls of wrath, and seven trumpets. So the seven should make us go, okay, there, there's something serious going on here. He's, he's, he's showing something. All of these quotations come from either the law, the prophets, or the Psalms. All right? And it harkens back to when Jesus said to his disciples after he was resurrected, he said, These are my words which I spoke to you while I was still with you, that all things which are written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. So he is now going to be fulfilling that in this very real way with these seven affirmations. Um, <clears throat> it also brings to mind in John 20 where Mary, after the, resurre- after the tomb is rolled away, she comes and there's an angel there and it's Christ. And um, she starts holding on to him. I don't know if you remember this part. And he says, don't cling to me. I have not yet ascended to the Father. Okay, so something still has yet to come, and we're getting to witness what it was that's yet to come. All right, so also all these quotations are also found in all the Psalms. Uh, Sorry, let me rephrase that. Every quotation we have is in a Psalm. Okay, so in the idea, I think that's kind of critical because what this is is supposed to do in us is to make us worship, and that's what the Psalms do. Uh, They connect with our heart. And when we see a picture of Christ like this, if we're not worshiping at the end, we have missed it because that is what it's intended to do. Okay, so I'm going to take the seven quotations in groups, the groups of two, and then we'll finish with the last exalting one. So the first pair, um, for, to which of the angels did God ever say, You are my son, today I have begotten you. Or again, I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. All right. So what he's doing in this first pair of affirmations is he's de- God himself is declaring that Jesus is the Davidic king promised. Um, psalm 2 is where the first one comes from. It's, it was known as a messianic psalm. The second one is in 2 Samuel 7.14. Uh, it's where David has decided the presence of the Lord needs a house. And so he tells the prophet Nathan that he wants to build God a house. And Nathan thinks it's a good idea until God talks to Nathan and he says, tell him this. He said, you know, my presence doesn't need a house. I'll build you a house. And then he promises that there will be an eternal king on the throne of David. And, you know, they don't quite get that, but that his kingdom, there will be a king where his kingdom will never end. This, these are the words that he used when he gave this to David. And these are the words he's speaking over Jesus. He said, today, you are my king. 
Today I've begotten you. Okay, begotten really here means established, enthroned. You're my king. That's what God is saying to Jesus. Um, so um, the second pair of affirmations. It says, and again, when he f- brings the firstborn into the world, he says, let all God's angels worship him. Of the angels, he says, he makes his angels winds and his ministers a flame of fire. Okay, so you start with that. And again, when he brings the firstborn into the world. You know, when I first read that, I'm thinking the incarnation. All right, he's bringing Jesus into the world. But actually, the, a lot of the commentators say what he's talking about is this new world. Not the world that we know, but the heavenly world that he is now in right now. Um, and the firstborn is a title. It is showing that not physical creation, because he wasn't created, but that his title is, he's the first. He is God's anointed. Um, and even the, la- the language of, I will bring him into this world, is similar to the way God spoke to the Israelites when he talked to them about coming into the promised land. In Deuteronomy, it's, he would always preface it, when he would say, when the Lord will bring you into the land, he swore to your fathers. Okay, and it's almost like he's now putting that on Jesus. He's saying, when, when I bring the firstborn into the world. Okay, he's showing that Jesus is this king into this world he's promised. And so the command is, okay, the father's saying, worship him. Jesus is the one you worship. And he, he says it specifically to the angels. I mean, it's like I can see the scene as all the angels are surrounding the throne. God very clearly declaring to them, let all God's angels worship him. Um, and and the, the second quotation, it comes from Psalm 104. I mean, it's the creation psalm. It's about praising God in all that he has made. And so he's saying angels are just creation. Okay, why would you want to worship creation. Uh, but God, Jesus has created all things. And so he is very clearly putting Jesus ahead of the angels. Okay. And so the, the third pair of songs is, it says, but of the son, he says, your throne, O God is forever and ever. The scepter of uprightness is the scepter of your kingdom. You have loved righteousness and hated wickedness Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness beyond your companions. I'm going to stop with that one just for a second before I get to the second one. That comes from Psalm 45, and it's known as the wedding psalm. Uh, But the first thing to notice in it is that God the Father is saying to the Son, Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. So God himself is proclaiming, the godness of Jesus. He's showing him to be divine and saying it. And he's basically saying, your kingdom will be just like my kingdom. It will be full of uprightness. I love righteousness and I hate wickedness. And now he's anointing him with the oil of gladness. You know, even that phrase, the oil of gladness, the word glad is not one of those words that really evokes a lot. It's like, I'm glad, you know, it's, it sounds kind of passe, but really in the, the word has more of a connotation of extreme joy. 
and I don't know why I didn't say oil of extreme joy, but it's oil of gladness, which is good. Um, so I did a word study just to see where, where else it appeared, and there's only one other place. The oil of gladness even shows up, and it's in Isaiah 61, which should be kind of familiar to you. It's the, the passage where when Jesus starts his public ministry, he says, The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me, because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the afflicted. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to captives and freedom to prisoners, to proclaim the favorable year of the Lord. And then he stops. The verse goes on, but he stops. The next part of the verse that he didn't say was, and the day of vengeance of our God. Okay, so that one, not quite yet. And then he says, he starts describing what is the favorable year of the Lord which is what we're in right now. It's to comfort all who mourn, to grant those who mourn in Zion, giving them a garland instead of ashes. Here it is, the oil of gladness instead of mourning. All right, so he's very clearly referencing, it's like we get the oil of gladness by being in him. When he is anointed with this extreme joy, and when we put our trust in him, when we become in him, we get his oil of gladness for our mourning, uh, the mantle of praise instead of the spirit of fainting. We have that great exchange. Um, <clears throat> so so that is, the, the wedding psalm is the first quote, where the father declares his son's kingdom is just like his, is one of righteousness and one of extreme joy. And then he finishes with Psalm 102. This is where the second quote in that pair comes from. It says, You, Lord... This is God speaking. And you, Lord, laid the foundation of the earth in the beginning, and the heavens are the work of your hands. They will perish, but you remain. They will all wear out like a garment, like a robe. You will roll them up like a garment. They will be changed. But you are the same, and your years will have no end. Um, So we immediately have this psalm. If you look at the psalm, um, and the reason I put the psalms on your handout is it's definitely worth your time to just read through the psalms that's referencing. You get a different picture than when you just pull the quote out. Um, But the whole psalm is about the prayer of the afflicted. And as you think about what the Lord's going to do one day, he's going to make all things right. He's going to change things. He's acknowledging that this world is hard and not right, and we experience unrighteousness, and we are unrighteous, and there's a lot of ugly stuff in this world. And we have, he is a king of a world where he understands suffering. He entered our suffering, and he cares about our suffering, and one day he will make it right. And so we move to the last affirmation from God, and it's, known as the coronation psalm. Uh, it's Psalm 110, and it's, it's now he bookends it with the end of his logical argument, you know, to which of the angels did he say, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. So the father declares right then that sit, it's like the work is finished. At my right hand, he's, he's sharing the throne with the father. Um, And until there's something we're waiting, what are we waiting for? Until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. The last enemy to be defeated is death. And it it anticipates that day of vengeance, that that pause that we talked about in Isaiah 61. Um, 
So it is a now and not yet kind of verse. And that, that word that God speaks over him is the enthronement of Jesus to this place of honor, uh, this new world that we as the church, the people of God, are awaiting perfect fulfillment when Christ returns. And it reminds me of the verse in Philippians. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. All right, so that is amazing, and it should make us worship. Um, But as I'm thinking on this, I'm thinking, okay, so does this really help us in the day-to-day struggles of life? I mean, does Jesus being declared to be our exalted king, does it really matter when you look in your bank account and you look in the checking account and there's not much money there and you've got rent to pay? Or maybe you have chronic pain, all right, and every day you get up is a fight. Maybe you're fighting sleep deprivation because you maybe will not sleep. Uh, When you have relationships that are less than what you've dreamed about, does this really help? And I think the answer is it does, and here's why. We are created to worship. The question is not, are we worshiping? The question is, what are we worshiping? Or better yet, who are we worshiping? When we find ourselves discouraged and disappointed, not filled with joy, living in unrighteousness, maybe the first thing to do is to start examining our hearts. Are you still worshiping the true king? Are you looking at him to provide you what only he can provide? Tim Keller, uh, and I've got, if you turn your hand out over, I've, I've created a list that I stole from Tim Keller from his book, Counterfeit Gods, which is kind of this help to diagnose what's going on in your heart, because we all need a little help. Because it's not always obvious. Um, But he describes an an idol is anything more important to you than God. Anything that absorbs your heart and imagination more than God. Anything you seek to give you what only God can give. So I encourage you to take a little time with that and just read through that and ask the Lord to examine you. And if you find something, the solution is to repent and worship the true king. So the encouragement of Hebrews is the biblical version of the TED Talk we started with. How do we keep the Christian life? How do we live it? We keep our eyes on the prize. Jesus is our exalted king. And you don't just need to know it. You need to be able to worship. You need to be able to sing it in your heart. So just a reminder of who this king is we worship. You have a king who has purposed all things under his wise counsel. The situation you find yourself in has purpose. It is not meaningless. Use it to run to your king. You have a king who loves righteousness and hates wickedness. He sees everything, and one day everything will be set right. You have a king who created all things, including angels, for us to enjoy. You have a king who has made purification for your sin, and you have peace with God because of this. You have a king who cares about your suffering. 
and is with you in your suffering. One day the last enemy will be defeated and there will be no more death. And you have a king who is faithful and will finish what he started in you. So the fight of faith really is a fight to keep seeing Jesus as he really is, the exalted king, so that we can live in that reality. So in keeping with our study, I thought I would end with Spurgeon because Spurgeon's really good. Um, And he says, it is easy to sing when we can read the notes by daylight, but he is the skillful, skillful singer who can sing when there is not a ray of light by which to read, who sings from his heart and not from a book that he can see, because he has no means of reading, save from that inward book of his own living spirit, whence notes of gratitude pour forth into songs of praise. So because I said the whole point of this is worship, I thought we should end with a little worship. I thought we should sing the doxology. And I'm going to start us, and that's scary, but I will do it. <laughs> and just note, there is a line in the doxology. As I was writing, I was like, praise him above ye heavenly hosts. It's like, how cool is that? In the doxology, God's reminding us once again, Jesus is much better than the angels. So worship him. All right. And I'm taking this off because <laughs> nobody needs to hear that. All right. Praise God from whom all.